spent the last 11 weeks talking about the importance of Torah study. And this is the beginning, hopefully, of a, of a, a comprehensive dive, deep dive, plunging ourselves into uh, analyzing uh, and investigating the idea of Torah and Torah study very thoroughly. You know, obviously we spent a lot of time as Jews, not only us individually, but collectively as a community, and certainly historically studying Torah, and Torah is arguably the most central idea in Judaism. And it has been the central idea of our forebearers for thousands of years. Uh, so the goal is to try to uh, kind of understand it on a little bit of a deeper level. So we started off with the question of what's the reason why we study Torah? What are the benefits? And we went through a list of 20-some-odd benefits of doing that. What I want to get into now in the next phase is establishing uh, a, a, an understanding of what the Torah is comprised of, but primarily how do we know that it's true? We claim, and I'm going to say this very clearly, we claim, the Jews claim, Talmud says, that every single solitary letter of the written Torah, all 304,805 letters, are authored by the Almighty, given to Moshe, and given to us and transcribed the same accurately till today. That's number one. Number two, we also believe that the Almighty gave Moshe all the mitzvahs, all 613 of them. And not only that, the proper way to fulfill these mitzvahs, which we call the Oral Torah. The written Torah, the, fact, the written document was given to the Jewish people right at the end of Moshe's life. Moshe's primary occupation as leader of the Jews, right, after he took the Jews out, is to educate the Jews in Torah and mitzvahs and how to fulfill those mitzvahs. And he spent 40 years doing that. Uh, there was no written document to uh, reference. This was all done orally. At the end of this 40-year saga, Moshe is about to die, and the Almighty tells him, okay, you've got to finish writing the written document, which is going to be the accompaniment to Torah, to the existing corpus of Torah that you had uh, uh, till then. Ironically, we tend to think of the written Torah as being the source material for the oral Torah. Ironically, it's almost, the, it's almost the opposite. The written Torah is the safeguard to make sure we don't make mistakes in the oral Torah. So this is a big idea. Most people think of it the other way around. But what I want to start with, uh, I'm going to start, we'll start with the written Torah and examining the question of its authorship. And then we'll move on to the oral Torah and understanding how those two relate and what the oral Torah is comprised of. Uh, now, in recent centuries primarily the uh, 19th, but even starting prior, the 17th, 18th, 19th, and certainly the most recent century, there has been a new form of scholarship called Bible criticism. Now, that's what people tell you. The truth is, Bible criticism, or analyzing the text of the Torah critically, has been part of the Jewish religion and the Jewish pastime for thousands of years. The difference, the innovation of the new Bible criticism was called higher Bible criticism, not because of stature, uh, but because it goes to a higher point in the pecking order, in the totem pole of the Torah, is questioning the authorship of the Torah. If you asked the average, uh, the average uh, I would say, Westerner, 
um, who wrote the Torah 500 years ago, the answer would unanimously be God. And now the scholars, the scientists have uh, set their sights on the Torah and that uh, premise was challenged. So what I want to understand today, just as a, as a springboard to this discussion, is what do the Bible critics say, uh, what do they have to support their claims, and a little bit of the Jewish response to that claim. So I want to start off with a major misconception, which I think uh, is the core reason for a lot of the delusion. I said prior, according to Judaism, the author of the Torah is God, but the person who wrote it, the entity, the individual who wrote it, is Moses. It's almost as if Moshe is a typist. God dictates to Moshe. Moshe writes. God says, write Vayomer. Moshe writes Vayomer. Hashem write Hashem. El Moshe Lamor. Every word the Almighty tells Moshe, Moshe writes it down. Moshe is the typist. He's the stenographer. He's the scribe. But it's God's Torah. That's what we believe. One of the mistakes that a lot of the, I would say, I would say the overwhelming can, uh, um, approach of the Bible critics, those that question the authorship, the divine authorship of the Torah, is they don't even consider divine authorship as a possibility. For example, this is from Wikipedia, which of course I'm not proving, I'm not trying to use it as a source, I'm saying, but this is, this is, in the, in the, on, this is the first sentence of the Wikipedia page on the documentary hypothesis, which is the uh, most popular theory of authorship. I get this, this, this is the sentence. Quote, The traditional view that Moses was the author of the Torah came under increasing and detailed scrutiny in the 17th century. Once again, what do we see? The traditional view that Moses was the author of the Torah was never actually the traditional view. In fact, uh, a modern book that was written for lay people that's very popular, maybe the most popular book on, um, popular recent book on Bible criticism is Richard Elliot Friedman's Who Wrote the Bible? And that's the premise that he has. His ha- he has his, oh, the Jews, the Christians, and everyone thought that Moshe was the author, but now we say, no, it's not one human author, it's multiple human authors. But no one ever is really considering a single divine author. Now, how do we know that Moshe cannot be the author of the Torah? I made that statement very clearly prior. How do we know that Moshe is, the author of the Torah? Moshe is not the author of the Torah and God's the author of the Torah? And I want to read you a quote from the Talmud. This is a very critical uh, quote. The Mishnah says, this is in Sanhedrin, in the beginning of the last chapter called Chelek. If you want to find it in the pages of the Talmud, it's 90a. Quote, All Jews have a portion of the world to come. Call Israel, Yeshua, Chem, All Jews have a portion of the world to come. Besides four, and these are the ones that don't have a portion of the world to, portion of the world to come. And one, it gives a list. Ha-omer ein, uh, ha-omer ein, uh, ein Someone who says the Torah is not divine. What does that mean? Explains the Talmud. This is a quote from the Talmud on 99a, so nine pages later. The rabbis taught, they quote a verse, For the word of God he has disgraced, he shall surely be cut, cut off. If you disgrace the word of God, i.e. the Torah, you're cut off from the Jewish people. If all the Jews have a portion of wealth to come, you get cut off and you lose, lose your portion. The rabbis further taught, same verse, for the word of God he has disgraced, this refers to he who says the Torah is not divine. And even if he says that the entire Torah is divine, except for this verse, that the Holy Messiah did not write, rather Moses himself said it, 
This too is included in, for the word of God, he is disgraced. Clearly, the Talmud says, if you say that Moshe is the author of the Torah, the Talmud 2,000 years ago declared, you're not part of the Jewish people. To say that the traditional view is that Moshe wrote the Torah is wrong. Plainly. Plainly wrong. The traditional view is not this, that God's the author. And if Moshe, if you believe Moshe wrote one word, one sentence, one letter of the Torah, Moshe has any sort of editorial uh, control onto the document, you are encroaching on a major principle of Torah, of Judaism, and you're cutting yourself off from the, from the nation. Can you explain how it was written? Because it was written like a historical account. So it's very clear that he... Go ahead, go ahead. Ask your question. After the event already, he couldn't have written... Who said he wrote it beforehand? Okay, so he was... And he's, he's dead described as well, so... We'll get to that. That's the next question. Good, 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 good question. I know, I know exactly what you're referring to. That's the next point on my, on my notes here. Let's go, to the, let's go to Moshe's death. When was it written then? Okay, good question. The last eight verses of the Torah, all the way to the end of Deuteronomy, they describe the death and the eulogy and the legacy of Moshe. Uh, what, who wrote these words? The, the, who wrote the last eight verses? So you want to read the verses, I'll tell you to go uh, to Deuteronomy chapter 34, verse 5 to verse 12. Those are the last verses in the Torah. You don't have to read it now, but uh, you, if you want to see, it's, it's all at the end. You don't have to actually follow the chapter verse. Just go all the way to the Torah, you'll see it. And there's a quote from Baba Basra. says the Talmud as follows. The, the, the rabbis taught, or the, one of the rabbis taught, Joshua wrote the book uh, which bears his name, which is the book of Joshua, and the last eight letters of the Pentateuch. Right? The last eight letters in... Eight letters? Eight verses. Sorry. Thank you. Last eight verses in the Torah. Uh, however... How do the how, how do we know that? Is it possible that Moses Moses being dead could have written the words Moses yes. died there? Yes, the truth is, however, that up to that point Moshe wrote from that point on Joshua. So the first opinion of the Talmud is that Joshua wrote those last words. This is the opinion of Rabbi Judah, and according to others, um, or uh, or Rabbi Nehemiah, but Rabbi, they, they say as follows: Rabbi Shimon says, "Can the scroll of the law be short one letter? No." We must say that it's up to this point, the Holy One must say he did it to Moses and repeated and wrote, and Moses repeated and wrote, and from this point on, God dictated and Moses wrote in tears. Remember, you and I cannot write events that describe our own funeral. Why? Because the way we write is that we experience something, or we encounter information, and we describe that information. If I were to write an account to a, a police account a deposition, so to speak, of, uh, a, a bre- of what I saw. I'm a witness. I'll say, well, I saw this guy, right? And he changed lanes and he crashed into the car in front of me. Right? That's what I would say. I can't write what's going to be tomorrow because I don't know what's going to be tomorrow. However, Moses is not writing the same way. Moses, first of all, is nothing but a funnel. He's not authoring anything. God, who exists beyond time, is telling him what to write. Moshe could write it, no problem. That is what we call, by the way, a prophet. Moshe is a prophet, thus he has the capacity to go beyond the fixed boundaries of the world that he's experienced. Now, God tells him, write, and Moshe died, and Moshe wrote it faithfully, but says the time he wrote it in tears. Obviously, that's a very 
Uh, the simple understanding of this Talmud, there's other explanations of this Talmud, what does it mean he wrote it in tears? But the simple understanding is that he was upset. He was saddened. You know, think about how, you know, writing your own eulogy, isn't that something that could be very uh, disheartening, sad, right? Uh, you know, it, obviously. Did he write as he went, or he actually uh, wrote everything at the very end? Yeah, good question. So the Talmud, um, so, okay, so when was this written? So I don't have this in my notes, but this is, it's, it's germane. Uh, but Moshe, we have, according to the Talmud, with the exception of the last eight verses, Moshe writes what God tells him to write. When did he write it, is your question. When did he write it? So, simply, we would say, well, he wrote it when the Jews got the Torah, right? But, right, that's not possible because... The Torah describes events that happened after, afterwards, right? For example, Moshe uh, wrote in the Torah or you know, uh, was dictated to by God to write about the story of him hitting the rock, which we know Moshe is reprimanded and castigated by God, Moshe and Aaron, as people who don't have any faith. Why? Because he didn't listen to God. God told him to speak the rock and hit the rock. If Moshe knew that information before it happened, do you really think he would choose to hit the rock and not talk to it? Certainly not. So the Talmud asked your question, when was the written Torah written? So the Talmud says as follows, up to Mount Sinai, which is halfway through Exodus, Moshe wrote at Sinai. From that point till the end, According to one opinion, it was Medilla Medilla Nitna. It was written incrementally. Right? Every, you know, every uh, you know, periodically the Almighty would tell Moshe, okay, now write this sentence and those sentences and those sentences, etc. Or it was written Chasumo, Torah was given Chasumo. Moshe wrote it all the way at the end, all at once. Regardless, right, the finished Torah wasn't finished till, uh, uh, till the end. The question is, was it given over incrementally or was it given over at the end? But there was no point in time where Moshe was wrote, with the exception of the last eight verses, Moshe wrote about events that didn't happen, that were to happen in his life. That being said, there are events that are referenced to the Torah that happened after Moshe's life, and that indeed will be very, very important to our discussion when we are to try to reverse engineer the Torah and see who wrote it, and is it possible for a human to have written it, or even a collection of humans to have written it, and when we examine some of the content of the Torah and some of the predictions that were so prescient and so out of the box and so unique historical events that are explicitly referred to in the Torah, we uh, indeed will look at predictions that Moshe wrote that happened many hundreds of years later. Also, isn't it true that Moses was commanded right before his death also to make Yes, so right. Moshe, that's right. Moshe at the end. Well, he was told. He was told. He was told. God told him to do it, right? right Well, I don't know if it's it's a proof, but I'm saying this kind of completes the story as to how the Jewish people got got, got the Torahs. They got. Um, Moshe, at the end of his life, wrote 13 of them, delivered one to each one of the tribes, and one of them was put for posterity into the ark. Now, future Torah scrolls were all copied from existing Torah scrolls. In fact, one of the laws about writing a Torah scroll is that it's mandated that if you write a Torah scroll, it has to be copied from an existing Torah scroll. What would they do? Every tribe had its ancestral Torah scroll that they got from Moses. And for hundreds of years, 
that tribe would use that original, Moshe's original handwriting, handwritten Torah, to make their own Torahs. And if there was ever a question, there was always one that was the Jewish people's, collectively, that was held in the Ark. Um, even after we lost track of those Torah scrolls, it was a tradition and custom amongst Jewish communities for thousands of years, until very recently, to always have, every community would have a central Torah that all the Torahs of that community were copied from. But either way, back to our central point that we began, what have we believed and continue to believe about the authorship of the Torah? God's the author, Moshe writes it down, and Moshe is not allowed to, uh, to pepper it with any of his own opinions, any of his own thoughts, any of his own words. And if you say that, in fact, you are rejecting a major, major uh, uh, fundamental tenet of Judaism. Additionally, this will be a little bit more relevant to what we're going to talk about a little bit later. Additionally, the Talmud says that if someone says, furthermore, Even if someone says that the entire Torah is divine, except for this nuance. Now, what's a nuance? So, nuance is a chaserot and yiterot, which means that Hebrew words can be spelled either with vowels in the form of letters or vowels not in the form of letters. We know Hebrew has letters and nekudot, which are vowels, Sometimes, a actual le- in the Torah, an actual letter replaces the nekudot. So you have words in the Torah that are sometimes spelled with a vowel, sometimes without the vowel. Even that is from God. And if you question that, you're also, uh, for the word of God, he is disgraced. Or this kalvachomer. What's a kalvachomer? If someone says all the Torah is true, and all the chasegot and nitrot are true, all the nuances are true and all from God, but this Kalvachomer is not. What's a Kalvachomer? Kalvachomer is a, a, it's called an a fortiori argument, which means an argument where you have a given law and you apply that law to a more strict law. So if there's a stringency in a given law, certainly that stringency will apply in a more strict law. That's an example of a Kalvachomer. Or a Jereshava. Jereshava is a Talmudic analogy of two laws, where you compare two laws based upon a common word. So if the word uh, uh, in Genesis describes the purchase of Abraham's uh, plot to bury Sarah uh, with the word kach, nasati kach and the word in Deuteronomy that talks about marriage has the word he ye kach, when a man shall marry a woman, the same word as kach in both of those instances, says the Talmud, we can compare those two, and thus we know that marriages happen with an item of value. So all the people in this room that have gotten married, and all the people watching, of course, listening, that have gotten married with a Jewish ceremony, we know a Jewish ceremony of marriage is with a, uh, a ring, a ring pre- uh, preferably of uh, uh, gold or silver, Right? but also without a stone, where the man would give it to the woman, say a special uh, 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 sentence, and, um, and give it to her. And then they're married. Where did that come from? That came from a Zereshava, right? Because of the similarities of the passages of the words that are overlapping, uh, that teaches us laws. Now remember, 
What's interesting about that is that this Akava Homer and Zereshava, they're not actually in the written Torah. They're in the oral Torah. Thus, the Talmud says, if someone rejects the oral Torah as being not from God, they too are encroaching on the verse, Kidvara Shembaz, if the word of God is disgraced, and it's implied that they too are cutting themselves off from the Jewish people. So this, I'm saying as an introduction, I think it's very powerful that the Jewish people traditionally have believed that the Almighty gave us the Torah. What does that mean? The written Torah, the oral Torah. And the one we have is the same one. And indeed, that is a very, very weighty claim. Um, just, Did he just, actually keep some oral Torah as well in his mind? Who? Who's uh, he? Moses. Did he keep, what do you mean, not teach it? I mean, it? oral Torah was given too, too, but he didn't write it down, so was he just memorizing it? Well, it wasn't just Moses that was memorizing. We'll get to the oral Torah. I want to do, the, I want to do this kind of systematically, um, but it's a good question. So um, your question is, to repeat, did Moshe memorize it and not teach it over? No, I mean, no. Because Mo- Moses wasn't the only one who memorized it. Everyone, mer- everyone memorized it. The entire nation memorized it. It was taught, like you said, uh, Esther four times, a minimum of four times. And then after they taught it four times, well, Moses taught to Aaron, then Moses taught to Aaron and Aaron's kids, and Moses taught to Aaron and Aaron's kids, and the, and the 40, and, and then the 70 elders of, of Israel, and they brought everyone else, and they taught it a fourth time, and then Moshe left, and Aaron taught it. A whole elaborate process of teaching, but that was just the beginning. Afterwards, when they finished elaborating a certain law, they disbanded, and they will all talk amongst themselves. And then indeed, the 40 years that the Jews, Jews spent in <coughs> the desert, the wilderness, is called the Dordea, the nation of knowledge, the generation of knowledge, because that's what they did. For 40 years, they lived in climate-controlled environments. They had this cloud surrounding them at night, they had the fire at, uh, I'm sorry, cloud of the day, cl- uh, fire at night. You woke up in the morning, there was a pile of manna on your front door. You ate that and you went to study. That's what they did. Uh, and indeed, what they did is incorporate the oral Torah into the, uh, into the collective individu- and individual uh, uh, memories of, of all the Jews. That being said, it wasn't just the memories, it was the practice. I want to hold off on this, but that's a good question. But no, Moshe didn't harbor it himself. Moshe memorized it, but the entire Jewish people memorized it as well. But either way, back to our central claim, and we'll try to substantiate this. So it was revealed then, just to Moses, but to everybody else too. That's right, that's right, that's right. Moshe taught the Jewish people, that's right. Uh, Now, our central claim is that the written Torah, the oral Torah, is all from God, and there's no intervention, not by Moses, nor by anyone else. And the same Torah that we got then, we got now. We still have today. If you look at the Rambam's 13 principles of faith, of faith that he delineates at, in his introduction to the chapter that that particular Talmud that we mentioned uh, earlier is, uh, is included, uh, he makes as one of his principles of faith that the entire Torah, written, oral, written and oral, is given to us by Moshe, but Moshe does not contribute any of the information, he is the conduit from God. Not only that, another principle is the same, the same Torah that we, have, uh, that we have today is the same Torah that Moshe gave the Jewish people. That's the claim. That, of course, came under scrutiny. That was challenged uh, by the Bible critics. Uh, there have been allegations um, that traditional commentators 
have embraced the idea of other authors or other human authors or human authors to begin with. Uh, that has been a little expedient because, for example, the Ibn Ezra, the great commentator from Abraham Ibn Ezra, the great medieval commentator of the Torah, where he is alleged to have taken the position that there are certain parts, passages of the Torah that are not written by Moshe, rather some other human wrote it or whatever, uh, those are all stretches. What I mean by that is as follows. If you are to look at any book that collects information on the documentary hypothesis or the Bible, higher Bible criticism, they will mention Rabbi Abraham Ibn Ezra, the great commentator of the Torah, he says that some verses are not written by Moshe. In fact, that's actually not true. What he does is say, in several places, is that this verse is a great secret. And I'm not going to tell you what that secret is. And in the mind of people that didn't understand that verse, or didn't understand the continuity of that verse, they said, oh, you see, it's a great secret. That, huh, we have some other authors, I'm not going to tell you who it is. That's, a, that's what uh, 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 it's partially based upon. Additionally, there is a, a mistake in understanding what the Ibn Ezra writes that has caused people to continue to make that fallacious assumption. Moshe, uh, the Ibn Ezra in several places writes, these are the words of Moshe. Now, the only places that that appears is when you have a dialogue in the Torah. So Jacob is talking. And in the middle of what Jacob is talking, you see an interjection of the narrator. So that he describes that this is the words of Moshe. What that means is, is that every word of the Torah, even according to the Ibn Ezra, certainly according to all traditional Jewish uh, commentators, every single word is, by, is authored by God. Right? He's the author. And when God tells Moshe, I want you to write down this verse, it could be that he's telling Moshe, write down your own verse that you said. Because a lot of parts of the Torah are dialogues. So he tells Moshe, you, remember you said that? You said to Pharaoh X, Y, and Z? You said that? You said that sentence? Write down the Torah. So that, those words were uttered by Moshe, but how it fits in the Torah it's because God told Moshe to write down what you indeed have, have said. So, we have instances where Jacob has conversations in the Torah. Uh, uh, Esau has conversations in the Torah. Bilaam has conversations in the Torah. Are they the author? No. Right? They are the character in God's book that's writing, that's talking. But God's still the author of the book. Now, when a character is talking, and then his dialogue is interrupted uh, abruptly, and the narrator interjects, says the Ibn Ezra, these are the words of Moshe, i.e., this is the words of, of, the, of, the, of the narrator who was, it was written by Moshe, but doesn't mean he's the author. doesn't mean that Moshe is saying, oh, this is what I'm sticking in. I mean, he's trying to explain the flow of a verse. So Jacob is talking, and then in the middle of a sentence, it gets cut, cuts off, and it says, okay, now these are the words of the narrator, which is... God, of course, but he uses this word Moshe. It's called the Torah's Moshe. Moshe wrote it down. But that mistake in understanding of Ibn Ezra caused lots of people to say, oh, Ibn Ezra says this, Ibn Ezra says that, which is totally false. Rabbi, Go ahead. Aren't there some people that think Ezra actually wrote the Torah? 
Well, people, a lot of people think a lot of things. Um, there's, you know, there's zero evidence. So yes, so, so, so the, the mistake that I'm trying to point out right now is the mistake that has been perpetuated that some commentators of the Torah who we hold in high regard also believe the nonsense that the German scholars of the 18th century uh, uh, formulated and espoused and postulated. Okay. Didn't they have them, like they mentioned the book of Yasha in the, in the Bible, and also mention uh, the academy where Jacob was studying. So didn't they have books like that before, like Yashar and something that was predating the Torah? So that, that, that doesn't mean anything. We have a lot of books for, that predate the Torah. That doesn't mean, well, predate the Torah, at least on planet Earth, right? Um, that doesn't mean that, that, that doesn't question the legitimate. Torah, Torah was, never, was never labeled as the first written document. The documents that precede it, there's clay tablets that precede it. So what? It doesn't mean anything. The Torah is claiming to be the word of God, irrespective of how many books were written prior or afterwards. Wasn't it written somewhere else before that? Maybe. He's saying the Torah might be referring to extant documents. Who knows? That's possible. But that doesn't, it, that, that doesn't interfere with the central claim that the authorship of the Torah, of 304,805 letters, 5,845 verses, five books, the Pentateuch, the Chamisha Chumshet Torah, however you want to call it, Torah's Moshe, the, the, books, the five books of Mo- Moses, is authored by John Moshe, is the one who writes it. Either way, in the 17th, 18th, 19th century, the claim uh, or the argument was developed that let's try to use science, or at least scientific methodology, to examine the authorship of the Torah. Now, it's important to stress that this is very soft science. It's not like we're dealing with a physical thing that we can measure. Uh, And there's also a lot of speculation. And we'll try to to, uh, um, look at some of the classical arguments and the classical Jewish responses. Uh, Now, that being said, like, uh, we have... I mentioned this earlier, we have been criticizing the Torah or critiquing the Torah for centuries prior. If you open up the Talmud, say, why does it say this? Why does it say that? What do you mean? It's God wrote it. Well, that's the way we study. We study by critiquing. The only difference is is that we're not critiquing the authorship, we're critiquing the the, the text itself. We're trying to examine what the text says and what it doesn't say. And what are the questions of the text? Because the question of the text is an opportunity to try to understand it a little deeper. Um... As to how do we know we have the same Torahs today as were given to Moshe, so that's also part of lower Bible criticism. And indeed, we uh, recently, recently relatively, of course, we have found Torah scrolls that are thousands upon thousands of years old. Uh, for example, the Cairo Gniza, a recent discovery, where we found Torahs that are about a thousand years old. But most significantly, we found the Dead Sea Scrolls, we found Torah scrolls that are 2,300 years old, and when you compare them to our Torahs, they're identical. So, uh, the, it is pretty amazing, yes. Um, so the claim that Torah scrolls, when put in the hands of people like you and me and Jewish communities worldwide, will go awry in all different kinds of directions, has been thoroughly bunked. But what about the higher criticism? Higher criticism is they're going to question the authorship of the Torah. They're going to look at, at style of writing. They're going to look at, at vocabulary. They're going to look at um, uh, the names of the Torah. They're going to look a lot for anachronisms. Anachronism is a word for, that describes things that are out of the place historically. So if I told you I charged, uh, as an example, I charged 
I went and I got a haircut and I paid a nickel, you would say, couldn't have written in 2016. But it could be written in 1916, right? But it would be anachronistic to say you had a haircut for a nickel in, you know, today. So there's going to be effort to say, okay, let's look at these time periods and let's match up things that were said, things that were written, names that were given. Are they, are they common names in that time? Prices paid for things. Uh, there was a fast, fantastic discovery. I know I'm jumping the gun here. But the price that was paid for Joseph the slave. Right? Joseph, the whole story, 20, exactly, 20 silver coins. Uh, one of the archaeologists found a list of, uh, a, like a price list for slaves that is dated to that time, and they found an uncanny connection where the price that they paid for Joseph was market price for that point in time and that place in history, which is fantastic. And if it was written 500, 800 years later, if Ezra wrote it, there's no way he could have known the exact prices paid or the names given if he was conjuring them out of his own imagination. But either way, we're, jump, we're jumping to the end. What a higher Bible critic wants to do is to examine the texts to see are there any repetitions of themes, are there any redundancies of themes, are there any anachronisms, contradictions, themes that are inconsistent. Uh, of course, you know, and you read the Torah and you find a lot of things that apparently seem consistent. Um, primarily, you find the fact that things are not chronological. Uh, you find that it discusses, let's say, the death of Abraham's dad. And then it talks about Abraham, who's 75 years old. When, if you do the math, when, a- when Abraham's dad died, Abraham was much older. Or much younger. I remember exactly. But, uh, you know, it, 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 but that's, I'm saying, even biochemists don't go with that anymore because everyone already knows. Uh, and any child in, in school will tell you the Torah is not necessarily in chronological, and it, it, it's acknowledged, it's not being chronological. For example, you look at Genesis, uh, chapter 38, I think 37, 38, 39. They discuss the sale of Joseph, like the one we just mentioned, and then right in the middle of the sale of Joseph, it stops, and it tells the story of Judah and Tamar. And that is obviously a Judah and Tamar, Judah and his daughter-in-law Tamar. And that's obviously, I think it's chapter 38 or 39. That's obviously, I'm sorry? That's obviously an account. That chapter is an account of decades. Why? It tells the story of Judah, his marriage, his kids, their marriage, their death, years later, and him and his daughter-in-law. To say that that all happened between when Joseph was sold and Joseph brought to Egypt, maybe a far travel without cars, but that's maybe a week of travel. No one in the right mind would say that that is chronological. Well, he actually went to Egypt after that, so we know... That's, also, that, that's also true, but it, my point is it's not chronological, where you see one chapter, Joseph is sold, and then the next chapter, decades and decades of things happen, and the following chapter, Joseph has just been sold. So obviously the Torah is very clearly not chronological, and that is indeed a child's argument. Uh, but we do have events that are repeated, uh, notably, we'll say that the description of Adam being created is said twice. We have the description of Eliezer, uh, Eliezer going to uh, going to, uh, to to procure a wife for Isaac. That's told twice. There's uh, multiple episodes of wives being taken captive. 
uh, and their husbands claiming that they're their sister. But that's different people, so or different episodes. So that's not clear. It's a retelling of the same story. But you see, and these things are pointed out as saying, you know, wait a minute, why do we have the same story twice or a similar story to different people told twice? Uh, now, when we see questions, right, we look for answers. In the minds of the critics, there's only one reconciliation. And that is that the only way they can reconcile the material is if there have been multiple people authoring multiple works, and later on, after these works were all in existence, someone came and merged it all together. Uh, over the years, the theory developed, and the idea, the rough idea, is that there's a, there was legends, there was folklore, there was tales and traditions that were around for a long time, for centuries, and every guy wrote his version of the story, and you had multiple versions of the same stories, and then later on, one guy came and edited it all together, and thus, there's no, there's no one guy, Moshe, or who wrote it down, certainly not authored it. There's multiple human authors over hundreds of years that uh, cobbled it together and then, or that, that, that wrote each on their own and then it was merged together uh, as one. Uh, and then in the 5th century before the Common Era, the 5th century, uh, one guy actually codified it and wrote the finished book. Uh, that's the basic idea of Bible criticism. Uh, how many different authors are we talking about? So there's the E document, allegedly, right? This is all allegedly. The E document, the J document, the D document, the L document, and the R. So E would be for the name of God as Elohim. The J is the name of God that we can't, the four-letter name of God that we cannot say. The D is Deuteronomy. The L is Leviticus. And the R, he's the redactor. He's the guy who did all the massaging of it all into one document, allegedly, of course. And... Um, that's the basic idea. Now, as to what exactly the theory is and what answers does it give and how does it actually reconcile that or does it even reconcile anything, that has been the subject of debate for centuries. Of course, there's, you know, once the idea, once there's a party of multiple (coughs) authors, other people say, well, there's the C document, the K document, the S document, the PG document, the P1, the P2. So many documents were all cobbled together and every time, if you look at a Bible critic who looks at the Torah, they basically see like a, a bowl of like alphabet soup. In every part, like this and that letter, that letter, K, L, M, right? It's just one big hodgepodge mess. Uh, and what do you mean by, all, by these documents? Well, th- th- I don't mean, I'm saying this is the theory. The theory is that there were different documents, different documents, and then one guy came and picked part from this and picked parts of that and made it all into one document. But the, the fact that they were originally different you know, there were some mistakes of his job. He made some mistakes, and therefore we could see that it looks like... That's the theory. While you're pointing at a good point, Dave, and that is that the theory in itself is self-contradictory. Because on one hand, we have this great genius who was able to seamlessly merge multiple documents into one cogent, comprehensive document. And not only that, convince millions of Jews and millions of Westerners that this is the Word of God. Number one. Brilliant. On the other hand, 
he's the sloppiest guy of all time because he makes mistakes that no one would make even if they weren't talented. On one hand, the only this is another problem that I'll, I'll throw in their face. Okay, so if there's this redactor who's putting it all together, genius, compile different words and merge it all together, and it's so seamless, on one hand, on the other hand, you're telling me that it's so obvious that it's multiple, multiple sources, number one, as a question that Dave would, uh, would bring up. Number two, historically, according to this timeline... By the time the documents finished, the Jewish people are all over the world. You have Jews in North Africa, you have Jews in Europe even beginning, Jews in Asia Minor, Jews in the Near East, uh, and in, in Persia and Iraq. And who, who's taking this document and peddling it to different Jewish communities all across the world and saying, oh, this is the word of God and you never heard of it, but so what, right? How does that work? That part of the story is never told. Remember, if it starts off when the nation is united and we have one document, we got it from Moshe, it all makes sense. If it's a document that came years later and it was just traditions that were never canonized and never codified and it was just a mess, and then one guy came and says, oh, I'll do, I'll do the solution. And then he has to lie, by the way. He has to lie and say this is all written by Moshe. He has to lie. But he makes that lie and he convinces someone. And he has to go convince someone else, and someone else, and someone else, and someone else, and has to go to, he has to go to Baghdad, and he has to go to Persia, and he has to go to Turkey, and he has to go to Morocco and Egypt, and right, that part of the story is makes that theory even more difficult. That being said, um, I want to I want to say something nice. You know, I I think that the idea of trying to understand or to ask questions, to critique, like I mentioned, that's, that's a, Jewish, a Jewish idea. Uh, the questions that are raised by the Bible critics are all valid. Um, that being said, the questions themselves, almost all of them have been raised before the great German Bible critics asked these questions. Great Jewish scholars thousands of years ago have asked the same questions. If you open up the oral Torah, you open the Midrash, the Talmud, uh, even Rashi. Rashi compiles a lot of the Midrash and Talmud uh, on the Torah. He'll say, well, why does it say this? Why does it say that? I was studying with the student of mine yesterday. And he's like, he asked me a question. He's like, I read the first 30, pa- 30 verses of, Gen- of, 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 of Genesis, and I noticed that it doesn't say this is good on Monday, and it says it twice on Tuesday. I said, Mazel Tov. You ask the question that Rashi tells us, that the Talmud asks, that the Majors asks. asks. You know, the question is a great question, right? The conclusion, the narrow-minded conclusion that the only possible way to reconcile these questions is to say this, create this elaborate scheme, multiple authors, and right, disregard all the evidence, despite the fact that it raises new questions that you haven't answered. Right, that's the problem that we have, the Bible critics. We don't believe that the Torah was given to us. And we should just sit comatose and let it be fed into us intravenously. That's not the way we study Torah. We engage with the Torah. We probe. We ask. We delve. We examine. We investigate further. And we argue. And you walk into any yeshiva and you'll say, these are a bunch of dogmatic robots. They just accept everything they tell them. When indeed, the furthest from the truth, right, that, that attitude, the people of the book, 
We're making people book because we're obsessed with study, with learning, with questioning, with investigating, with asking. That questions are good. And a lot of the questions appear in Jewish sources. But if you're taking this highbrow, like, I'm going to show these primitive Jews what really is going on over here, right? You know, and you, you kind of, it's, it's a little bit, you know, it's a little bit embarrassing, right, to, to, to do that. It's a little bit, you know, disgraceful uh, to tell us how to study, right? As if we are just, you know, we're just accepting it, fa- you know, in fact, never, qu- of course we question, right? But let's question and anytime you don't have an answer, don't automatically jump to conclusions and say that there must be multiple authorship. Jay, you had a question. So this is going to be an analysis, yes. and a work in progress in perpetuity, in essence, till the end of time, without any types of conclusions? Who? For them? The analysis of authorship. No. Uh, not for us. Uh, not for this class, not for the Jews. The Jews, we know the answer already. Uh, We've concluded that oh well, not only that we can, we didn't conclude it. We we even started off at the beginning, right? That's the end of that. Right. Uh, our goal in this particular uh, forum is going to be to say, okay, well, let's examine the evidence and let's see what we have to say in the matter. We're going to go through some of the evidence for us as as if we're bystanders uh, who are going to approach, approach it reasonably. Uh, but in the greater kind of scientific community, in the uh, the Bible community. Uh, it's, is it going to be ever cut and dried? No, uh, because there's an incentive for them to question the legitimacy of the Torah. You know, remember, there's a lot of implications at stake here. Uh, if the Torah is not written by God, our religion is a sham. All the Jews that died for being Jews over all of history they died for no reason. In a weird way, this may sound a little bit offensive, but logically it makes sense. In a weird way, the people that flippantly conclude that the Torah is not written by God are more evil and more cruel than Hitler. It can be let, me, let me finish. Why? Why? Because when you say that, you're implying, or what's, what can be concluded from that is... The Jewish people are not special, and we don't have a mission, we don't have God's Torah, and thus the fact that we suffered so much was all meaningless. And indeed, to kill someone may not be as bad as to make their life and their death meaningless. So that's what I'm saying. We have to be very wary of, well, certainly not as Jews to conclude that, because I know some Jews, unfortunately, that say, oh, well, Rabbi, everyone knows that this is not authored by Moses. Well, I don't agree it's authored by Moses. But when a Jew does, when a Jew does, when, a, when an anti-Semite does it, does it like you're mentioning, Jay, okay, anti-Semites will be anti-Semites. When a Jew says that, not only are they walking away from a central tenet of their religion, but the gravity of what it means for us and for them is astounding. For us, it means that our religion is a sham. It really is a sham. The whole thing is, you know, is, is a house of cards. And everything, that, all of our history has been a waste of time. Right? So that's, that's why we have to be very careful, certainly as Jews. Yes, of course, there are anti-Semites. And, and, and I would say it's anti-Semitic to say that the, that the Torah is not written by God. That doesn't mean that that alone should be enough to 
be conclusive that we know it is authored by God. We're going to try to go through that systematically. Uh, but I think it does really kind of up the ante, you know, raise the stakes of, uh, of the seriousness and the gravity of such a conclusion or even such a, you know, uh, uh, throwing that out there. Yeah, go ahead. I, I mean, uh, I'm sure that your arguments are pretty good. And, go ahead. You know, I'm, I'm probably was convinced of uh, Torah being written by God before you did yes. lecture. But Every single the word. The conclusion of, from the fact that it was written from God, I mean by God, is that, okay, there's more to it than we can just read in translation into English or even in Hebrew. So there was this uh, professor of mathematics, uh, as you probably know, Eliyahu Ritz, and uh, Hebrew University started the study of Torah codes. Mm-hmm. And now this is just the beginning because the codes do not have to be just, you know, progression, arithmetic progression in it. So if we could just consider the Torah as a one giant coded document where okay, so a lot more than just Okay, so I, I chose I chose but let me look, okay, I chose uh-huh. to not put codes as part of what we're gonna do no, for a very specific reason. First of all you know, it's the mathematics. I wasn't just talking go about ahead. codes. Go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. But I would like to know your opinion, but let me just say, yes. what I was going to say is that, let's say Torah codes, as far as I'm concerned, they are abbreviated version of what is in the Torah. And See, that's your assumption. That's your assumption. That, that, that's the problem. The no, problem is, is that, uh, the problem with Torah codes, apart from I, I just want to finish here, I'll finish at least, at least, uh, okay. you know, quickly before, I don't want to leave us hanging until next right, week. Okay. Um, the problem with using Torah codes in, 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 the, in this context is because if Torah codes are great, what do they prove? You know, because love says, oh, you know, other experiments, and it's, it's, it's an argument for the mathematicians. That's number one. Number two, we're not necessarily claiming that everything's in the Torah in the form of Torah codes, right? No, no, no one's made that claim from our side of the argument. So that's why we're not going to use it for or against. I don't think, I, I think there's an argument to be made uh, uh, um, again, means should we suppose that Torah codes aren't true? Doesn't mean anything. And even if we say it is true, I don't think it's convincing. But I wasn't even going to talk about the Torah codes. What I was just mentioning them. It's just one way of looking at it. I agree. I agree. Maybe there's a, maybe there's a, maybe. Using, let me just say this. He was using Eliyahu Ribs, who's an ultra orthodox. He was using this. Torah codes to try to prove to the Torah. statistically with other books and trying to prove the divine origin of the Bible. Yes, so 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 there's Torah codes to try to look at future events, and there's Torah codes. I, I don't know what specifically he's referring to, but to look at the uh, at the congruency of a given document. Right. Now I don't know how they do this, but they take a given document and they analyze certain verbiage uses. And to compare on a, on, a, on a give a scale from zero to hundred, how congruent that document is, and they found that the Torah is eighty-two out of hundred, when other works were known of known of single authorship is like eighteen or twenty. I don't even know what that means, but yes, there is something there, and and we I, I just I, I don't think it's so convincing either way. So I want to I want to put it on the side. But let's quickly here finish here some of the ideas that are used. Um, to respond to some of the uh, our criticisms, we have a great German rabbi, the name of Rabbi David Svi Hoffman. He took the approach of systematically and painstakingly disproving Bible criticism verse by verse, word by word. Every argument that they said, he showed what, why it says it like that, why it's more perfect than what the lesson behind that is uh, as well. There are other approaches that were used 
that uh, looked at archaeological discoveries and found a lot of really cool, awesome things uh, about that we could prove today with the turn of the shovel to demonstrate uh, the veracity of the Torah. Uh, I want to look at the idea in general today. If you read any of these critics, they have a presupposition. Now, this presupposition right, guides them. They presuppose, they are assured that prophecy is not possible. I'll give you an example. Their uh, uh, part of the argument of the Bible critics is the fact that Deuteronomy, Dvarim, is its own book written by someone else. Why? Right, so for two reasons. One of them is a negligent mistake, and one of them is a, is, is, is a sophisticated mistake. Two mistakes they made. Mistake number one is that they looked at the usage of words in Deuteronomy, and it was different than the rest of the Torah. The reason why that's a silly mistake is because if you look at Deuteronomy, the very first verses of Deuteronomy, it gives us an introduction. It says, these are the words of Moshe when he spoke at the end of his life. And like we said, it's still part of the Torah, but God told Moshe, write down what you said. But those words were uttered by Moshe. So you have four partios of Moshe talking. Of course, Moshe's not the author of those words. God told Moshe to write down what Moshe wrote. But the origin of those words with, are with Moshe. Certainly they'll be different than words that originate with God. Number one, right? But that's a, a silly mistake. But number two, the central claim that Deuteronomy was written later is because Deuteronomy makes a lot of predictions. And we're going to get into the meat and potatoes of those predictions, in, uh, I guess, next time or maybe the time after next. Uh, and those predictions all came true. If you're sure that prophecy does not exist, it's not possible to prophesize. Thus, if something was written about an event that you know is true, it must be that that thing was written after those events happened. That's the only conclusion you could possibly come with. Thus, they're not even willing to consider the possibility that prophecy is true, and thus it's possible to know events before it happened. The nice checkmate that we have is the fact that we have events that happen that are happening now, events that are unprecedented in, in, in all of human history, like the return to Israel, which is plainly spoken about in the Torah in words that are so clear it's undeniable. Events that, have, that are never replicated in all of human history, where a nation is scattered for thousands of years and comes back to its ancestral, ancestral homeland. A prediction that we know for sure was not written after 1948. That we know. We have copies of books that are 2200 years old. And it says those same words. Right? No one makes the claim the Torah was written after 1948. Yet, Millions of Jews are not going back to Israel. And that's a tradition that we find in Deuteronomy. And it's unimaginable to make the claim that this is written afterwards. But that was the claim. Because they started, their point of departure in the argument was prophecy is not possible, thus events that happened way back when and are written plainly in the Torah predicting it to happen must be written afterwards. Uh, we know... Uh, the book of Isaiah, there for many years they thought, obviously not our topic, we're talking about the five books of Moses, but the book of Isaiah, for many years people thought, the Bible critics thought, that it was two authors were put together as well. Uh, but checkmate again, because in Qumran they found, in where the Dead Sea Scrolls, they found dozens and dozens and dozens of copies of Isaiah, and you know what? They're the same as the ones that we have today. Uh, but But I, I, and I, I want to end with this. But like, the question that we have to ask, let's assume, just for a second, I'm talking to the Bible critics now for a second, 
let's assume that God did write the book, or a book. How would it be written? More specifically, how would it be different than the way a human would write it? Imagine the author knew all events that ever happened and all events that will happen. Is it possible that it'll be a little written differently in the way a human would write it? Yes, absolutely. Of course, it seems, it seems likely. Uh, and indeed, we could say perhaps that not only is God aware of the intentions of uh, or the future events that are going to happen, but God's also aware of how humans learn. And we know that humans are notoriously bad at learning from written documents. Just, you know, in modern times, we have the Constitution. It's a document written a couple hundred years ago with the explicit intention of everyone knowing what they meant. If you ask the author's of the Constitution, do you want people to understand what this means in 100 years from now? Sure. Will they understand it? Of course. I'm writing it in English, right? It's so, it's so clear. Uh, but it isn't. Because humans are absolutely terrible at, at writing down in a way that will be understood in the future. Make believe you're God for a second. And you're writing down the Torah. What's your intention? Do you want the people who read it in the future to know it? Sure you do. Certainly. Could you perhaps, would that affect your writing of it? Of course it would. But this, of course, is going to lead us into the next topic. Indeed, if you read the Torah, it doesn't flow it doesn't flow. It's certainly not chronologically, but it doesn't flow. Why? It's certainly written in Hebrew, right? Because the, God wrote it with the intention of us knowing it today what it means. And not only that, having all of Torah, when I say all of Torah, I mean all 63 books of Mishnah, and all the books of the Talmud, and all the Halacha, everything condensed into 5,845 verses. Everything's there. But it's written in a way that it has to be unpacked. It has to be understood in the context, or through the lens of the Oral Torah. The Oral Torah teaches us what it means. And the only way we could possibly fairly critique the document is if we look at the entire document, the encrypted version, the written Torah, the decrypted version, the Oral Torah, together... That gives us Torah. That gives us what the Almighty wanted us to have. And that explains every single verse. Everything makes sense. Everything. But, if you're going to say, hmm, only humans write books. That's your starting point. Only humans write books. Number one. Number two, humans cannot possibly know about events that happen in the future. It's not possible. Well then, if that was your, uh, you know, that was your baseline for examination of a, ta- of a text, you're never entertaining the possibility of God authoring the Torah, and you never think of God uh, telling the human author, should there be a human author, of what's going to be in the future, most certainly you would come to, or, or at least you perhaps may come, you might not, because there are things in the Torah on their own merit uh, that display its divine origins, but you may indeed come to such a conclusion. It's not, it's not much of a shock. And that's why it's important for us, and we're going to spend some time now. We're going to look, let's look what it says in the Torah. Let's see what kind of evidence we can compile. Let's imagine, is it possible for a human to write it like that? 
But either way, we have zero evidence. There's not a shred of evidence against divine authorship of the Torah. Not one. Not a single. Not a textual. Not a literary. Not a, not a, not a theological. Not a philosophical. Nothing. Not a single shred of evidence. And there is an absolute abundance of evidence in favor of the divine authorship of the Torah. Uh, and unfortunately, um, uh, you know, people are very quick to cast judgment. Uh, and uh, they come up with, uh, uh, they use uh, textual chicanery and, and we have to be very careful about such, uh, such conclusions. And um, it's just absolutely ludicrous uh, to, A, jump to conclusions, but also, B, to not answer all the questions that come with that conclusion, like, okay, how did this book get disseminated to everyone if it was written after uh, after it was, uh, the Jews were raised or scattered. Or, how do you disseminate the book when to a people who are in the book itself say they got the book from Moses? Right? It's easily falsifiable. All those questions and more uh, stand in the face of uh, of, of the biocritics. But if you take the Jewish way of learning the book and understanding the topics, we have zero questions. Uh, certainly zero. We may have questions, a lot of questions, but there's no evidence to question divine ownership, and there's an overwhelming abundance of evidence to support our claims that the oral, the oral Torah, as well, of course, but the written Torah was authored by a divine entity, and indeed, our life as Jews and our history as Jews is not tainted with the stench of a terrible, terrible mistake. Thank you. I look forward to continuing this this pursuit of truth next week.